0: Hello, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast. This is a mini-episode, Amana International, Part 1. Today, we explore tales of the late 14th century BCE, the height of the Bronze Age, and a time of great interconnectedness. This episode is made up of three short stories, little pieces that are interesting, but could not sustain a full episode on their own. I have assembled these tales over the last couple of years from various episodes. Now I've put them together for you. These tales concern foreigners who come to Egypt to participate in Egyptian life. They all operate within the Amarna period, between 1400 and 1300 BCE. That's a broad definition of the Amarna period, but you get the idea. At the height of the Bronze Age, Egypt and its society was intimately connected with different communities across the world. Today, we will explore a few situations in which foreigners came to the Nile Valley to participate in Egyptian society, and the records they left behind. Today's episode is an offering from the priests, specifically my priest-level supporters on patreon.com. Thank you to Linda, Terry, TJ, Yola, Mykost, Andy and Chelsea, Jason, Kendra, Evan, Kyla, Nidin, Stephen, Ashley, and Mark. These fine folks are endlessly generous, for which I am most grateful. Truly, you sing praises for the gods. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Let's explore an international world. Chapter 1, An Ancient Phrase Book In the 14th century BCE, between 1400 and 1300, diplomacy spread far and wide. From Egypt to Babylon, Assyria to Hatti, Cyprus to Greece, Nubia to Anatolia, messengers travelled, traders traded, and different groups communicated. Letters journeyed between different courts, as powerful rulers negotiated and celebrated each other's reigns. But these kingdoms and communities had their own languages and economic systems. Which begs the question, how did they communicate, specifically? What languages did they use, and how did they translate ideas between different cultures? From the Amana archives, we get a clue. A clay tablet covered in writing reveals the scribe's methods for communicating internationally. In this case, we have a dictionary of sorts, or rather, a vocabulary. This tablet records a long list of words in two different languages. The first language is Egyptian. The second is Akkadian, the language from Akkad. Akkadian was the diplomatic language of the Late Bronze Age. While different courts used their own languages internally, they communicated with one another using Akkadian. It was the lingua franca of their day, an international tongue used for diplomacy. This tablet presents two columns. On the left, a series of words and phrases in Egyptian. On the right, the same words and phrases in Akkadian. It seems to be a guidebook a scribe communicating in both languages. Now, based on the writing itself, the style, the layout, and the various features of their grammar, this tablet seems to come from a foreigner, someone outside of Egypt, and unfamiliar with the Egyptian language. With that in mind, this could be an import to the Amarna court. Perhaps a scribe from Canaan, Syria, Mesopotamia, or Hatti, travelled to Amarna And to facilitate their learning and communication, they compiled a phrasebook. Imagine a lonely planet guide, and you might have the idea. The tablet is damaged, as usual. But many pieces survive. Enough to reconstruct the gist of what this person was doing. In the main body of the text, the scribe gives various common words and phrases. First, they give the Akkadian version. Then, they give the Egyptian for example, the tablet includes a list of currencies. Quote, One shekel of silver is called one shena in Egyptian. Two shekels of silver are called two shena. This list goes on all the way up to ten shekels, which equals ten shena. You get the idea. The scribe has compiled a quick glossary for converting one set of currency, a shekel, to another, a shena. To be clear, these are not coins or money in the modern sense. In this case, a shekel or shenna is a weight. Imagine the merchants weighing various items against certain quantities of metal. The metal weight is the shekel or shenna. So the scribe has created a conversion list to help them with trade. If someone needed to convert a shekel to its Egyptian equivalent, this guidebook could assist. The scribe also converts common words. For example, they give translations for house, door, chair, bed, offering table, and more. Simple, common words that you would need in daily life. Again, it's like a phrasebook for a traveller. Which is a cool idea. Apparently, the scribe came from distant lands. And to facilitate their life in Egypt, they compiled various words. Today, this Akkadian-Egyptian vocabulary is fragmented. But the bits that survive give a tiny taste of ancient life. The simple but necessary tasks for a traveller visiting the Nile. Chapter 2. The Rise of the House of Ashur. Our little phrase book is not the only hint at interesting situations in diplomacy. We also have information about an international dispute, specifically an argument between two kings regarding the Egyptian monarch. It wasn't a war, but it had ramifications for the various kingdoms. And from this record, we get a hint at the anger and the pride of distant rulers. The crisis began when a minor king named Asur-Ubalit wrote a letter to the pharaoh. Asur-Ubalit was the lord of Asur, or Ashur. This was a city and a kingdom in northern Iraq. You may know Ashur by its modern name, Assyria, a famous state that built great empires across the region. In the mid-1300s BCE, Assyria was a minor kingdom. It had lost a great deal of its international standing, and it was temporarily quite small. But assur ubalit was hoping to change that situation. The lord of Assyria wrote to the pharaoh with a request. Would the king of Egypt acknowledge him as a ruler? Would the pharaoh grant assur ubalit recognition and status? This was a simple request, but he was willing to pay handsomely for the privilege. Quote, to the king of Egypt, thus speaks assur ubalit the king of Assyria. I send a messenger to you to visit your country. Until now, my predecessors have not written to the king of Egypt. But today, I, assur ubalit do write to you. I send you a beautiful chariot with two horses, and a stone in the shape of a date, that is made of genuine lapis lazuli. I send this as your greeting gift. Please, do not delay the messenger whom I have sent. He should visit your country and then leave for Assyria. He should see what you are like and what your land is like. Then he should return. End quote. What did that mean? Well, the letter is quite simple, a greeting and a gift and a request that the pharaoh send the messenger back. On the surface, it really doesn't sound like much. A letter of introduction, or the opening lines of an awkward tinder conversation. Asur-Ubalit was breaking the ice with the pharaoh. So the letter seems inconsequential. But this request was more significant than it appears. asr ubalit was making a bid for recognition on the international scene. As I said, the kingdom of Assyria was small, at this point in their history. They had been a great power previously, and they would be again in the future. But at this specific moment, they were a minor player in the diplomatic game. Asur-Ubalit was trying to change that with diplomacy. By writing to the king of Egypt, he sought recognition as a lord and monarch. That could be quite valuable, If the pharaoh, the king of Egypt, acknowledged his status, Assur-Ubalit would gain great prestige. At home, he could say, The pharaoh is my friend. And when dealing with neighbours or rivals or negotiating, Assur-Ubalit could claim far greater status than before. In the late Bronze Age, recognition and prestige among the great powers was a valuable asset. Even a tool in politics and diplomacy. That's still the case today. Consider how great political events can unfold when one nation tries to change its diplomatic status in relation to others. The basic idea is that Asr Ubalit's letter might seem trivial, but reading between the lines, the king of Assyria was really shooting his shot, making a bid for power. Did it work? Well, another letter survives, also from Assur-uballit. Here, the king of Assyria reports on what has happened since his previous message, and we get an idea of where things went. Quote, "To Naphruria, the great king, king of the land of Egypt, my brother," thus speaks Assur-uballit, king of the land of Assyria, "great king, your brother when I saw your ambassadors I rejoiced may your envoys dwell in my presence in great comfort i have sent as your greeting gift a beautiful royal chariot two white horses and another chariot and a seal made of genuine lapis lazuli apparently the pharaoh did respond to assur ubalit's request the king of egypt sent envoys to assyria bearing gifts that was a clear statement that he acknowledged assur ubalit acknowledged him as a ruler, and recognised his status. In this one shot, the king of Assyria got everything he wanted, and that even comes through in his language. In the first letter, Asir-Ubalit was humble, even deferential. He addressed the king of Egypt formally, not using the pharaoh's name and he described himself simply as king of Assyria. Nothing too fancy. But in the second letter, he changes his tone. Now, assur ubalit uses the pharaoh's name, Napchururia, which is Tutankhamun. So he addresses the king directly as a person. And for himself, Asur-Ubalit upgrades his description. Now, he calls himself the king of the land of Assyria, great king, and your brother. That is quite a self-promotion. In the space of two messages, Asr-Ubalit has seriously risen in prestige. The Great King phrase is significant. In this period, the international scene was broadly divided between two classes of ruler. At the basic level, there were the kings, the Lugal in Akkadian, these were the rulers of various lands, the monarchs of small territories. We might call them princes or lords today, but they were kings in their own right. But then there were the great kings, the Lugalgal in Akkadian. The great kings were the big boys. Today, we might call them emperors. Lords who commanded multiple lands, multiple peoples and communities, multiple territories and states. The sort of rulers who gathered tribute and power from a great many places. So at a basic level, a king, or Lugal, was a local ruler. A great king, Lugalgal, was an international ruler. There is more nuance there, of course, but that is a story for another day. Asir-Ubalit, king of Assyria, now claimed the title of great king. He was making his bid for international prestige. If other rulers acknowledged him as a great king, then Asir-Ubalit might join that exclusive club of the international emperors. In context, that was quite a gamble, because as far as we can tell, Assyria hadn't changed that much in terms of its military or economic power. It was going to change very soon, but at the time this letter was written, the king of Assyria was still, officially, a minor power. So Assur ubalets bid for great recognition was quite a gamble. Surely, his neighbours and rivals would have something to say about that. Assur-Ubalit's letters to the pharaoh were bold, and they enraged one of his competitors. The kingdom of Assyria was, broadly speaking, located in northern Iraq or Mesopotamia. But to the south, another kingdom held great power. This was the kingdom of Babylon, and the lords of Babylon were not happy with Assur-Ubalit's quest. Following the exchange between Egypt and Assyria, the king of Babylon also wrote to the Pharaoh. This king, named Bura Burias, was concerned with political events, and he engaged the king of Egypt directly on the issue. From the Amarna archive, Bura Burias speaks his mind. Quote, to Nibhoruria, to Dungamun, the king of the land of Egypt, my brother. Thus speaks Bura Burias, the king of the land of Carduniash, Babylon, your brother. To me, all is well. To you, your house, your wives, your sons, land, officials, horses, and chariots, may it be very well. Now, as for the Assyrian Assur Ubalit, he is my vassal, my servant, and I am not the one who sent him to you. Why have they, the Assyrians? Come to your country on their own authority. If you, Pharaoh, love me, then the Assyrians will conduct no business with you whatsoever. Send the envoys away, send them to me, empty handed. The letter is long, I have cut out a large section of it, but you get the gist. Bura Burias, the king of Babylon, was furious at the impudence of his neighbour. And he told the pharaoh, in plain language, that he should reject the Assyrian request. The matter was serious, a matter of pride and respect between the great kings. Surely, pharaoh would honour his friendship with Babylon before he honoured an upstart, wayward Assyrian. The dispute is fascinating, both from a personal and political point of view. As I said, Assyria was technically a minor power at this point. That was changing, but in terms of international prestige, the king of Babylon far outranked the Assyrians. From the language of Buraburias, we get a sense that, at this point, the lords of Babylon claimed rulership over the Assyrian lands. At the very least, they claimed tribute and service from the Assyrian kings. So when Buraburias calls Asir-Ubalet his vassal, we have to assume that there is a long-standing relationship between these two powers. The fact that the king of Egypt is getting drawn into this dispute is fascinating. I don't need to tell you that it is a long way between Babylon and Assyria and the land of Egypt. The messengers who were conducting these negotiations had to travel for weeks or months just to deliver each letter. And they probably had to stay in each country for several weeks at a time, while each court or government considered their situation. With that in mind, we sort of have a slow-motion car crash between three great powers. Or rather, between two great powers, and one minor power who was trying to become great. Looking at it personally, it's almost funny, Bura Burias seems very put out that his wayward vassal, Asur Ubalit, would dare to transgress his authority. Of course, there is a great deal of political nuance here that we are missing, and which I'm skipping over. But Bura Burias's language is remarkably personal. He treats it as a matter of friendship, of good trust between the great kings. If the king of Egypt loves his brother, the king of Babylon, then he will have no business with the Assyrians. It's almost like a playground argument. If you're friends with me, then don't be friends with that person. But, you know, at an international scale. (laughs) Unfortunately, we don't know what came of this dispute. The letter from Babylon is the last fragment recording these events. So the outcome of this crisis remains uncertain did the pharaoh back down and revoke Assyria's friendship status? Or did the king of Egypt ignore his distant cousin, Buraburias, and carry on as before? Did the king of Babylon make any attempt to slap the Assyrians down, perhaps by diplomacy or conflict? Again, we simply don't know. What we do know is that these kingdoms, separated by thousands of miles, were in frequent contact And more importantly, the rulers of these lands had surprisingly prickly relationships. Pride was a strong factor, and the quest for recognition or respect could easily provoke great anger. Asur-Ubalet, king of Assyria, was a rising player, or at least, he viewed himself as a rising player. But the king of Assyria was trying to enter a club, an exclusive club and the Lord of Babylon was having none of it. Did archaeologists discover Noah's Ark? Is the rapture coming as soon as the Euphrates River dries up? Does the Bible condemn abortion? Don't you wish you had a trustworthy academic resource to help make sense of all of this? Well, I'm Dan Beecher, and he's award-winning Bible scholar and TikTok sensation, Dr. Dan McClellan. And we want to invite you to the Data Over Dogma podcast. Where our mission is to increase public access to the academic study of the Bible and religion, and also to combat the spread of misinformation about the same. But, you know, in a fun way. Every week we tackle fascinating topics, we go back to source materials in their original languages, and we interview top scholars in the field. So whether you're a devout believer, or you're just interested in a clear-eyed, deeply informed look at one of the most influential books of all time, we think you're going to love the Data Over Dogma podcast. Wherever you subscribe to awesome shows. Chapter 3 the servant of El. From a scribe composing a phrase book to an international dispute between diplomats and kings, we come to something a little bit more unusual. In previous episodes, we've explored the idea of foreigners living within Egypt and rising up to prominence in the society. Back in the days of Amunhotep II and the Third, around 1400 or so, There is a great deal of evidence for non-Egyptians, quote-unquote, gaining great prominence in Egyptian society. The status of foreigners is always slightly uncertain. We know that there was a great deal of flexibility around this, but there could also be a great deal of prejudice, at least at the official level. The pharaohs, in public and propaganda, had a somewhat antagonistic relationship with outsiders, but that is a surface-level interpretation. Behind the scenes, there is a lot more variation and a lot more nuance to these relationships. The man I am about to discuss is an excellent example of this situation. In 1987, an archaeological expedition at Saqqara unearthed a tomb. The tomb was dug into a cliff overlooking the Nile Valley. It was relatively simple in its design, a corridor, a columned hall, a staircase leading down to subterranean passages. But as the excavators dug, the tomb went deeper and deeper. From the first corridors and halls, the tomb opened into a shaft, and at the bottom of that shaft, a series of chambers appeared. The tomb is deep, cut well down into the bedrock, and it's complicated architecturally, So whoever built this tomb was a prominent individual, with wealth and status in society. So far, that's pretty typical. The Saqqara necropolis is home to a great many tombs from powerful and prominent individuals, especially in Dynasty 18. The reason this tomb was significant was its owner, specifically the name of the owner, and the evidence that we have about his origins the tomb belongs to a man named Aper-El. This roughly translates as the servant of El. El is a god, or the god, and it seems to be a common phrase in Canaan, Syria, and Mesopotamia for references to the great deity, the all-powerful creator. That is a really basic description, I've skipped over a lot of nuance there, but you get the gist. El is a reference to a significantly powerful deity, or cosmic creator. So, who is this Aper-El, the servant of El? And why does he have such a large tomb in the necropolis of Saqqara? We'll start with the basics. Aper-El seems to be a foreigner, quote-unquote. Or at the very least, somebody with a foreign heritage. It's entirely possible that Aper-El was born in Egypt, grew up there, and lived his entire life in the land of the Nile. But his family, at least, had some connection to Canaan, Syria, or Mesopotamia. A connection strong enough to use a name like Aper-El, the servant of El. Strictly speaking, it doesn't matter exactly where he came from. The point is, where Aper-El went during his lifetime Aperel was a high ranking official during the Amana period. Our first reference to him comes from the early years of Amun Hotep IV, the king who later became Akhenaten. Aper el seems to have served Amun Hotep IV during the first few years of his reign, and Aperel was highly placed in the king's government. First, Aperel had the title Imira Nut or overseer of the city. This is probably a reference to the nearby city of Memphis, or Mennefer. It's possible that Aper-El was the mayor or governor of that region. But he had an even greater title as well. Aper-El was the Chatti. The Chatti is commonly translated as vizier, although you could also say prime minister or governor. Whatever the exact nuance, the Chati is one of the highest ranking officials in the government. Technically, the Chati is second only to the king. In the eighteenth dynasty, Egypt had two Chati, a Chati for the north and a Chati for the south. Aper Elb seems to be the Chati of the North. This means he was Amunhotep IV's representative in the city of Memphis, the lands of the Delta. And perhaps the northern territories. This means that Aper El, the servant of El, was, for a time, one of the highest officials in Akhenaten's government. Now, as I said, we don't know exactly where Aper El comes from. It's entirely possible he was a foreigner, who somehow rose high in the government, or he may have lived in Egypt his whole life. Aperel does not make any reference to his early career or his childhood, at least not within his tomb. So Aperel appears fully formed as the chati, or governor, and overseer of the city. This means that we are missing most of his backstory, which today is quite unfortunate. But working backwards, we can reconstruct a few elements – it's quite likely that Aper-el became a high official during the reign of Amunhotep hotep III, the father of Amunhotep IV, slash Akhenaten. The reign of Amunhotep hotep III is well known for the extravagant wealth of the court, the international connections of Egyptian society, and plenty of evidence for foreigners visiting the region. It's entirely possible that Aper-el came to Egypt during the reign of Amun-hotep III. Or, he came to prominence in that particularly cosmopolitan international court. You can read that either way. On the evidence we have, we don't know where he comes from. But what we do know is that Amunhotep IV, Akhenaten, continued to employ Aper-el as his high official. He even gave him a rather distinctive title, Another job that appears in Aper-el's tomb is First Servant of the Aten. This seems to be a title related to priests, who would manage and oversee the temples of Aten that existed throughout Egypt. So Aper-el was probably in charge of a local shrine to the sun god Aten, which would give him access to wealth and resources, because Amunhotep IV, Akhenaten, Distributed huge quantities of supplies to the Aten temples. A position like first servant would also imply that Aperel was close to Akhenaten in some capacity. At the very least, Akhenaten trusted Aperel enough to raise him high in the temple hierarchy. For a king like Akhenaten, who was so obsessed with that one particular deity, that suggests great trust or respect between the official and the king. Based on the king's respect, his esteem, aper had permission and could afford to build a magnificent tomb. This tomb at Saqqara was discovered in 1987, and it's been under a slow excavation ever since. Unfortunately, the tomb itself is in quite poor condition. The subterranean levels, the chambers down at the bottom, are quite unstable. The rock is damaged so archaeologists must work slowly, with a careful eye for conservation and structural integrity. The downside of this is that, although it was discovered in 1987, the tomb itself still hasn't been published. The lead excavator, Professor Alan Zephy has published a few articles on Aper-el, and a couple of small discussions in some of his books. But a full scientific publication of this tomb has not yet happened. That's unfortunate. I want to go deeper into this man's career, his life, and what we can say about him. But for now, reliable information is still forthcoming. What we can say is that the tomb was large, it was complex architecturally, it had beautiful decorations, and when it was used, the burial furnishings of Aperel and his family were quite beautiful. Remarkably, archaeologists found the mummy of Aperel, his wife, and one of his sons, in the tomb itself. The coffins had been damaged by water seeping in from above ground. As a result, the mummies of Aperel, his wife, and his son had disintegrated, leaving just skeletons behind. Nevertheless, enough survived from the furnishings to suggest that Aperel had a beautiful burial suite, The coffins were high quality, probably decorated with gold and paint. The surviving objects were high quality. There were funerary goods, like coffins and canopic jars, and also domestic items for daily life. The burial included cosmetic dishes, carved in the shape of fish, a sort of bust in the shape of a woman's head, probably designed for holding a wig, pieces of jewellery, and even a ceremonial measuring stick a cubit rod, that may have been a donation from the king himself. The measuring rod had titles and epithets for Aper-el, including the phrase Aper-el, the king's man. Again, this suggests that Aper-el was highly respected by the ruler of Egypt. So, going through the various items, although they're badly damaged, gives a hint at a lavish, splendid burial this man must have been wealthy, influential in his community, and respected by the ruler. That begs the question, why have we not heard of Aperel before, and why do we not know more about him? That question, for now, does not have an answer. Perhaps the scientific publication of this tomb will give us some more clues. But it's entirely possible that Aperel's monuments and his records have simply disappeared it's quite likely that this man was influential and prominent in the region of Memphis. Now, unfortunately, the city of Memphis is mostly lost archaeologically. Suburbs of southern Cairo cover the entire area. As a result, many of the monuments that existed in Memphis are long gone, and traces of many individuals have disappeared to history. Perhaps Aperel was visible and prominent in the region at the time, but 3,000 years have simply erased what was left. We can't rule that out. But for now, it's an interesting question. This man, with a distinctly foreign name, rose high in the court of Amunhotep III and Akhenaten in his early years. Aperel built a lavish tomb in the necropolis of Saqqara, and eventually… Apirel himself, plus his wife and his son, were buried in that tomb. Today, the monument is still under excavation, but hopefully the future will reveal more and more clues about this man, about his family, and about their lives. Apirel is an intriguing question mark, so hopefully we can return to him in the future. This brings us to the end of Amana International, part one. In part two, we're going to look at another area of the world that had strong connections to Egypt. During the Amana period, the late 14th century BCE, we also have a great deal of information about connections between the Egyptians and the Mediterranean and Aegean. I've explored a few of those recently, but now we have even more tales to discuss. So, join me soon for Amana International Part 2, in which we find evidence for pirates on the Mediterranean coast, connections with Aegean or Mycenaean people, and even distant connections with the tale of Odysseus. That's all from me. I will see you soon. Take care, and may the gods bless your travels.